Philippians 1. For a moment, I'll read from verse 12. Philippians 1. Father, as we look to you, and look to your word, uh, we ask that you would open our eyes again, that we might behold wonderful things from your law, and that we might see Christ ever more clearly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. May God bless the reading of his word. I don't know if anyone really looks at sermon titles in the bulletin. I've never had anyone look at me and say, that was an interesting sermon title. But maybe today you saw it. Maybe you saw the sermon title. It's called Gospel Advancement in an Odd Way. It is a strange title, but I think it's an appropriate one for the text. I want to just take a moment and create a hypothetical situation for you. If you're the person responsible for bringing the gospel to the world, uh, how would you do it? If you had the power and you were put in charge of being sure that Christ was preached in Gladwin County and the Apostle Paul, say, lived somewhere on M18 or maybe he lived on Pratt Lake or maybe he, he, he lived on Bard Road or Chapel Dam, um, how, how would you use the Apostle Paul to promote the gospel and advance the gospel. I imagine you put him in a pulpit so he could preach. You would put him in various situations around the community so that he could evangelize. Uh, you would create discipleship programs of some sort so he could continue to make disciples of the nations. You give him all the opportunities he could possibly have to pass on truth to the next generation so the gospel would continue to go forward and cultivate believing families. I mean, uh, what would you do if it was your job to bring the good news of Christ to the world? You're in charge, and you have the person who's considered the greatest theologian, the greatest Bible teacher, the greatest church planter, and the greatest evangelist at your disposal. I mean, he's on your team. You're going to use him, right? And then you have this bright idea, this light bulb goes off above your head, and you say, I know what I'll do. I'll have him arrested. I'll have him put in prison. I'll have him tied up in court cases, under arrest in Rome, 
chained to a Roman garden for maybe half a decade. That's my plan to promote the gospel. So instead of having your best, most prolific, most fruitful believing Christian out on the field, you're going to sideline him. And not just sideline him, you're going to cause him to suffer. And in the process, believe it or not, the gospel will expand beyond what it would have if you left Paul out in the field. That's exactly what's going on in this very odd passage that we just read from. Demonstrating ever so clearly that the message is far more important than the messenger. And that God does not need any one person to carry out his plan. The gospel proclamation, the growth and the expansion of the church depends solely on God and his word. And humanly speaking, he does things his way, which we consider at times very, very odd. Turn your Bibles for a moment to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, I think this really frames our text this morning. Just seems so counterproductive to have Paul in prison for such a long time when he's been so fruitful on three different missionary journeys, planting churches at this time throughout the entire known world. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 8 states, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, for starters, this is just a needful reminder that God does things completely different than we do. He needs no counsel. He needs no advice. He has a plan, and he'll fulfill his plan, his way. But then notice verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, now do you see that he's not putting a person forward? Rather, he's putting forward his word and putting himself forward. We know it's his word because God states It's from my mouth, and it shall accomplish what I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent. You see, it doesn't matter who the messenger is. What what matters is the message and and the God behind the message, because it's God's message or God's word. God advances the gospel his way. And as we jump back into Philippians 1, I just want you to notice that God advances the gospel his way. Not through a particular messenger, rather he advances it through difficulty. He advances it through frailty, and he even advances it through hypocrisy. 
Uh, notice first, he advances it through difficulty. Paul writes in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I think it's worth noting that Paul keeps others informed about the difficulty he's facing by saying, quote, I want you to know, brothers, Paul is demonstrating to us that he lives his life in such a way that he lets people in on what is taking place. Brothers and sisters, I, I just want you to know what's going on in my personal life. And this is not an isolated instance for Paul. He was very open. The entire book of 2 Corinthians is almost autobiographical. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul was open about wanting others to know the great difficulty that he and his colleagues had experienced. In chapter 6, Paul actually used his own openness to encourage the Corinthians to open up their hearts to him. I don't want to get off on a tangent here because this is not the main point of the text, but I think this is an area of weakness in the church. Most of us do not take the time to let others in Others in the body of Christ know what's going on in our lives. We don't let others in on who we are and what we're going through and how we're doing. And the point I'm making is that he was intentional about let others know all that he was facing in terms of his adverse circumstances. And I wonder if you are. Do you let others know about the things that you're struggling with? I hope you do. We can't pray with you. And we can't pray for you unless we're informed about some of your difficult circumstances. And specifically, the circumstance that Paul's talking about here is his imprisonment. And instead of his imprisonment actually squelching the gospel and stopping the gospel and bringing the gospel to a halt, he actually says that it's proving to advance the gospel. I want to take a few minutes here. I want to just discover a little bit about Paul's imprisonment so we can understand how it advanced the gospel. To do that, you need to turn back to Acts chapter 21, and then we'll jump back to Philippians 1. In Acts 21, Paul had just finished his third missionary journey. He's back at the church in Jerusalem. And very similar to when the Shicks come home or when Jesse and Mukadam come home, they report to us because we sent them out. Uh, we're part of their support team. They come back and report on all the things that God is doing in Poland, the things God's doing among the Uyghur people. Very similar to that, Paul is back reporting to the Jerusalem church what took place uh, as he was on this third missionary journey. Notice verse 17 of Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Just a genuine time of joy as Paul recounted all the marvelous acts God had done as the church in Ephesus was planted, and the church in Corinth was planted, and the church in Philippi was planted. However, the time of rejoicing for all God had done didn't last very long. About a week later, after Paul 
had met with James and met with the church leaders. He's in the temple, and there's other Jews there in the city who were not believers, who felt that Paul was steering the Jewish people away from the law of Moses, who had stirred up the crowd and had falsely accused Paul, and they actually created a major riot in the city. This is just a week later. We'll glance down at verse 30. And all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they're seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The tribune or the cohort was a ranking Roman officer. It was his job to maintain order in the city and peace in the city. When he heard what was going on in Jerusalem, he rushed in with soldiers to try to create order. Look at verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Now, now watch this. Paul's arrested. He's bound with two chains. He's, he's being inquired for what had taken place. Look at the sheer hostility and the craziness of this out-of-control mob who want to kill Paul in verse 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. I mean, the mob is completely out of control. You have the soldiers that are probably have Paul up on their hands, carrying him across to safety. And, and none of this is Paul's fault. He's done absolutely nothing wrong, even though he's the one being accused of wrongdoing, and he's the one arrested. Now, beloved, he's arrested in chapter 21. And believe it or not, he's in prison for the rest of the book of Acts. You can read chapter 21 through chapter 28 for your homework. It's a fascinating read. And the book of Acts ends with Paul still in prison, waiting to stand trial for this one incident in Jerusalem. Now Luke, the writer of Acts, gives us some clues of how much time has transpired. I, I just want two references or two clues. Look at chapter 24, verse 27. Chapter 24, Paul is still in prison, but now he's not under the tri tribute of the cohort. He's now in prison under the reign and rule of Governor Felix. In chapter 24, verse 27 states, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So from the incident in chapter 23 up until this point, we know that at least two years have passed, probably much more, but at least two. Now, you have to read all of this on your own to discover all that transpired through his imprisonment. But he finally arrives in Rome, and I can't take the time to read it all to you. But when he gets to Rome in chapter 28, look at verse eight, 16 states. When he gets to Rome in verse 28, look at verse 16 states. When we had come into Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. He's waiting for the trial to happen. 
for the incident that happened in chapter 23. And as he waits for the trial, he's under custody, he's under Roman custody, and he's chained to a Roman soldier. And then the timeline comes in verse 30, where Luke tells us again, Luke 30 of chapter 28. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it took two years to get to Rome, and now for two years he's under house arrest, chained to the soldier who guarded him, waiting for his trial. That's at least four years, not counting the trials and not counting the things that aren't mentioned. What's really amazing, that Paul the church planter of all church planters, Paul the evangelist of all evangelists, Paul the theologian of all theologians, in prison, for such a long period of time. I mean, who does this? Why not just let him go on his fourth and fifth and sixth missionary journey to advance the gospel? Why not let him go out and plant more churches? Well, God's ways are not our ways. And God's thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? not the messenger it's the message the difficulty he faced did advance the gospel and paul tells us in verse 13 back in philippians 1 i'll pause for a minute for you to go back and find it his difficulty he faced did in fact advance the gospel and he tells us how in verse 13 chapter 1 of philippians it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. When Paul was arrested and brought to Rome, people were talking. And apparently the imperial guard, which is a group of 10,000 of the best soldiers in the empire, they're all aware that Paul is suffering in prison for the sake of Christ. There may have been three or four guards every day, maybe who rotated, being chained to Paul during a 24-hour period. They're chained to him, maybe wrist by wrist, all the time. And we saw in Acts 28, verse 30, that Paul was able to have people come to him where he was under house arrest, and he continued to preach for two years, and he continued to teach for two years. And these soldiers heard Paul preach and teach day after day after day. And they must have talked about what Paul was saying back at the palace because Paul states also in verse 13 that it was evident to all the rest. So the gospel went beyond the guards and even to those who are not chained to Paul and not part of the imperial guard began hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they all knew was that he was in chains not because he had done anything wrong but because of Jesus Christ. And the text actually says, because he was in Christ. If you turn forward just a few chapters to Philippians 4, notice verse 21, when Paul gives his final greeting as he writes to the church in Philippi from the Roman prison. He says, greet every saint in Christ. All the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Paul's imprisonment. Paul's difficulty, Paul's suffering, 
Paul's inability to do what he wanted and go where he wanted to go were used to advance the gospel into the very household of Caesar. The saints, those who were converted in Caesar's household, maybe they were service workers, maybe they were soldiers, maybe they were even family members. They want to say hello to all of you believers in Philippi. So what we view as Paul on the sideline, God sees as right in the middle of where he wants him. Sinners continuing to come to saving faith, though Paul's in chains. There's nothing that will stop the advancement of the gospel. Because it's not the messenger. It's the message. And it's the God behind the message. But the advancement doesn't stop there. Did you see that too? Along with those unbelievers hearing about Christ, his circumstance also had an effect on believers, who I'm going to call the frail. Verse 14 states, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now that is... For me, one of the most encouraging verses I, I, I'll ever read, maybe, maybe not to you, but this encourages my soul because it shows me that maybe I'm normal because this would indicate since they became confident that they previously weren't confident, that they became more bold means what? They previously weren't very bold and now they are given the gospel and speak the word without fear which indicates that previously they were very fearful to speak the word of God. I like verses like this because I see myself as not very confident and not very bold and most of the time fearful. And as I read this, I pray that God help me be more confident, more bold, and less fearful. So his circumstances proved a great benefit to the unsaved world. And his circumstances proved to be a, an incredible benefit to believers who are frail and fearful and unconfident and timid. And even though Paul was sidelined, even though he wasn't going and going and church planting and church planting, and he wasn't doing and doing, even though Paul wasn't out there on the front line, even though he's chained in prison, the gospel just burst forth literally into the palace guard and all the rest. And Roman Christians gained a renewed boldness that they went out and spoke now about the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. God has a strategy, doesn't he? It isn't our strategy because his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. He just says, I know what I'm doing, whether you understand it or not. Because why? It's not the messenger. It's the message and the God behind the message. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, we're going we're to scold you on the way out the building today. Pick up a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and read it as fast as you can. Read the old version, the new version, the modern version, the kids' version. Watch the thing on cartoons is on videos the pilgrim's progress is the second most work of fiction that's ever been purchased in all of human history we would never know anything about john bunyan and pilgrim's progress 
if God didn't put him in prison for 12 years when he was able to write such a, such a wonderful, wonderful story of the Christian life. And his, his, and his imprisonment continues to be a benefit to believers for the past 400 years. 200 languages has been translated in him. It reminds me of the life of Jim Elliot and the four missionaries in the 1950s who were attempting to reach the Aka Indians for Christ in Ecuador. And if you're not familiar with the story, after you buy Pilgrim's Progress, you have to buy the book Through Great Gates of Splendor. There's two must-reads for you. Read Pilgrim's Progress and read Gates of Splendor. Read them at the same time if you can. Elizabeth Elliot wrote it. Jim Elliott was her husband. He was one of five young, vibrant, gifted missionaries, evangelists, who dedicated their lives to reach an unreached people group who literally had never even been around civilized people, let alone hear the gospel. The Aka Indians lived in fear. They lived in, under horrible superstition. They, they lived under great bondage to the evil one. And these young men went to Ecuador to tell them that Jesus Christ can free them from their sin. Instead of bringing the gospel to them, when they finally, after all the research they did, after getting small contacts out in the jungles, and finally they were able to see them face to face for the first time, it was discovered later that the tribe of Indians thought these five men were cannibals. And because they thought they were cannibals and they were worried about being eaten by them, they, they fired blow darts at all five and killed all five, leaving their wives widows and their children without a father. Why? Why would you? Say this to God. Why would you, God, take out such young and gifted and hopeful men? Why leave their lives stranded on another continent? Why not allow them to preach and evangelize and disciple for the next 50 years? They're in their 20s. Wouldn't that be more productive and produce far more fruit? instead of ending their promising lives so abruptly? Well, Elizabeth Elliot had to struggle with those questions, and I put a, a copy of her notes in her book in your bulletin so you could have it with you. She had to struggle with those questions, and this is what she came up with. I'll pick her up in mid-thought. This is 20 years after the incident. She actually went back to the Aka Indians and evangelized them. That's another story. But here's what she wrote later. When I live with the Indians themselves, and during all the years since I have recounted it and reflected on it in the light of my own subsequent experience has pointed to one thing. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, 
unspeakably behind my largest notions of what he is up to. This is the context in which the story must be understood. As one incident in human history, an incident in certain ways and to certain people important, but only one incident. God is the God of human history, and he's at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. God is the God of human history, and he's at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. The way he accomplishes his eternal purposes is completely different than how you and I would do it. And the truth is, over the next few decades, after the martyrdom of these five men, hundreds and even thousands of other men and women committed their lives to go to the mission field. See, it wasn't their imprisonment that furthered the gospel. In this case, it was their untimely death. It seems like a plan that none of us would choose. Having five young men killed or put your best evangelist in prison. It turns out for a way for the gospel to expand. In the case of Jim Elliott and his companions, the call to world missions expanded and it absolutely exploded. And in Paul's case, now you have a small army of bold and confident men and women telling others that they're sinners separated from God under his holy and just judgment because they're sinners. Telling these men and women that if they don't turn from their sin and repent of their sin and believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is the savior of their sin by suffering and dying and rising again as a substitute for their sin. If they don't believe that and commit to that and repent, they will die under God's fierce wrath and judgment for all eternity and so will you if you don't embrace the gospel. That's what these men are proclaiming now. You see, the gospel advances, not because of the messengers, rather because of the message. Because God works in and is working through all fallen, frail people for his glory. So it advances through difficulty, it advances through frailty. Notice, finally, the gospel advances through hypocrisy. It's a very unusual point, isn't it? After declaring that many are more bold about declaring the gospel, Paul makes a somewhat startling statement, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Do you see why I said that, that he, God uses even hypocrisy to advance the gospel? Paul's describing two types of preachers here. We know there's two types because he states in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. You have some preachers saying things, and you have some preachers saying things. Then in verse 16 and 17, he refers to the same two categories of preachers as the former and the latter. Now understand, he's not talking about delivery. And he's not comparing their content as if it's different than each other. 
not about good preaching and bad preaching. He seems to be saying that the message, the two types of preachers are preaching, the message is absolutely identical. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ. Verse 16 says, the former preach Christ. And verse 18 says, Christ is preached. So the problem is not in their message. The problem is in their life. Uh, group A is defined by six very negative, unchristlike qualities. They're preaching Christ from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and not sincerely. They want to afflict Paul and they preach out of pretense. Now, let, now, what do they say? Uh, FYI, let me let me tell you something you may not know. Okay, for your information, may shock you. Okay, ready? Preachers are sinners. Got the biggest chuckle from the one who lives with this preacher. And as sinners, as sinners, we're we're envious, and we struggle with rivalry. Such a battle not to have the mindset. We just want the ministry to grow. You want to be noticed. You want others to hold you in higher regard. And as oftentimes your ministry expands, if it does, you really do sometimes want the church around the corner to fail. In fact, it does bother me that there's different programs in certain places that are more vibrant than ours. And so why maybe I'm glad when things don't go well for other churches. Isn't that what Paul summarizes there as selfish ambitions? One of the worst places that a small church pastor can ever go is to a pastor's conference and listen to all the other pastors talk about bigger churches and more staff and more in Sunday school and more youth and goes on and on. I mean, preachers struggle, and it's their sin that moves them to preach with wrong motives. Thankfully, they're not all like that, not all like me. There, some people are like group A. Group A has positive Christ-like qualities, they're preaching Christ from goodwill and love, and they know Paul's imprisonment is for the defense of the gospel, and they're preaching the truth. Two groups, totally different motivations, different attitudes, Different reasons for preaching, yet they both have the identical message. Now, hear me well. It's not an excuse for pastors to have these attitudes. They're sinful. It's wrong. And Paul, at this point, is not correcting them or telling you how to correct them. You have to read the pastoral epistles for that. He's simply stating the facts. And if the message is not Christ-centered, then Paul is not rejoicing. He's not saying that he's rejoicing because there's simply people in a building that gather Sunday by Sunday to hear a, a message. We know from the book of Galatians that Paul did not rejoice in the preaching of the Judaizers who were beginning to influence the thinking of those in the church. Paul said there that anybody who distorts the gospel, anyone who preaches a different gospel, anyone who preaches a works-based gospel, let him be accursed. There's obviously certain types of preaching that Paul would rejoice over. Paul would not rejoice over preaching that promoted man. He, he wouldn't rejoice over a self-help gospel. He wouldn't rejoice over, over your best, having your best life now. 
He wouldn't rejoice over a watered-down gospel. He wouldn't rejoice over preaching that contained modern and psychological steps to overcome the issues we face. He wouldn't rejoice over anything that resembled a health and wealth gospel. He rejoiced in something very specific. He rejoiced in a message that originated from God's word where Christ and the gospel were central. And apparently, apparently he's able to look past the envy and look past the rivalry and look past the selfish ambition, which according to the context was directed at him. He could look past all that and even rejoice as long as Christ was preached. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Well, Jesus actually talked about the exact same thing. If you turn with me to Matthew 23, which happened in Paul's day, existed long before Paul, because it was experienced when Jesus was on earth and even before then. When Jesus was teaching, there were men who had the right message, wrong behaviors. And Jesus, interestingly enough, upholds the message and rebukes their behavior. Matthew 23, long before he's crucified, he turns all of his attention to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, preachers of the day. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Just pause for a minute there. Moses represented the law. He represented teaching. He represented judgment. He represented authority. He represented the truth that was to be passed down to generations that follow. He represented God's word to the people. Jesus is acknowledging that the scribes and Pharisees, because they're in Moses' seat, they have a position of authority. The scribes and Pharisees taught the law. They taught God's word. And even though they lived a life that was completely contrary to the message that they're preaching. Look at verse 3. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. What is Jesus saying? If the truth is spoken... The truth that is spoken is the truth, regardless of who's speaking it, and regardless of how the person speaking is behaving. Jesus is saying that, that, that whatever these teachers tell you that is from the word of God, the law of Moses, listen to it and do it. But do not act the way they act, because they're telling you what the law says, but they're not practicing what they preach. And then he goes on for the next several verses in, Luke, in uh, Matthew 23 and lays out several woes of judgment on the Pharisees and the scribes. Not because of their teaching, but because of how they live. Ultimately, the word of God, the message of Christ is bigger, more important, more significant, more powerful, and surely more valuable than the messenger who proclaims it. Let me say that again. Ultimately. The word of God, the message of Christ is bigger, more important, more significant, more powerful, and more valuable than even the messenger who proclaims it. I mean, God spoke truth from Balaam's donkey. He can surely speak through believers who act like stubborn donkeys. This is why he can declare in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, 
and we'll rejoice. Now, for those of you who've been in the church for a long time and have been around pastors who behave badly, yet preach Christ, it is really hard sometimes to separate the message from the messenger. And Paul does tell Timothy that he needs to keep a watch over his life and doctrine closely. They should go hand in hand. But when they don't, and Christ is preached, we can glory in the, in the life-changing message of Christ becoming flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death to save helpless sinners like you and I. We can rejoice in the message. So the gospel advances through difficulty, the, the gospel advances through fealty, and the gospel actually advances through hypocrisy, which is a reminder that God's plan of redeeming mankind through the death burial, and resurrection of his son doesn't need anything to go forward except God. Because God is the God of human history. And he's at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. Three final thoughts. First, it's clearly not about the messenger, it's about the message and the God of the message. Because Paul was possibly the greatest messenger ever, and yet God sidelines him. Why? Because when he's on a four-year trip as a prisoner, through no fault of his own, through no wrongdoing of his own, men and women in the palace and and in the military can hear the gospel and come to saving faith. Secondly, it's clearly not about the messenger, it's about the message. Because Paul, possibly the greatest messenger ever, and God silenced him. Why? Because his sufferings and his imprisonment and his difficulty caused those who knew why he was in prison for the sake of Christ to become more bold and more confident and less fearful as they proclaimed the glorious message of Christ. So instead of having one person, Paul, proclaiming, now there's dozens, maybe hundreds, declaring the message. Because the messenger is irrelevant. And the message goes on. And then third, it's clearly not about the messenger. It's about the message. Paul's possibly the greatest messenger ever, and yet God sidelines him. And other preachers, other preachers who hear about his imprisonment and hear about his difficulty are so full of selfish ambition and so full of pride and rivalry. They're actually happy he's out of commission. They're saying, good riddance. Maybe now I can be noticed. Maybe now I can speak at the next conference. Maybe I'll have my chance. (laughs) And Paul, without even a negative statement about these men, only that in every way, whether in in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. Do you, do I, do we love the message of Christ, the glory of God, the gospel, the story of God, bringing men and women into a right relationship through his sacrificial death of his son? Do you love that so much that if you go through great loss in your own life, if you go through great difficulty in your own life, and that difficulty causes the gospel to advance, Can you, will you rejoice 
in your difficulty for the sake of Christ? And if your difficulty puts you on the sidelines and and brings others to the forefront, if your difficulty and your pain and your sorrow and your turmoil is used to strengthen the body of Christ for the glory of God and others then take a more prominent position and they do the work that you used to do, can you rejoice in that? When others around you in the church are happy that you're down and out and when others around you are snickering over what they consider your misfortune and and they envy you and they're in rivalry against you and yet they're telling others the glorious message of Christ crucified, risen, coming again, that men and women can come to him through repentance and faith. Do you love Jesus to the point that their treatment toward you is irrelevant as long as he's exalted? I think my answers are no, no, and I don't know. I wish they were yes, yes, yes. Do you really believe that all glory belongs to him? It starts with believing the gospel. And if you have not fully understood, people, that you're a hopelessly lost sinner, and you have not understood that Jesus is the only Savior for your sin, and you haven't repented of your sin, and you haven't given up your sin, and you haven't believed that his death and his resurrection is the only thing that you can, that will save you and that you commit to and that you've announced your commitment publicly, it's likely that you may not be a Christian. And if you cannot affirm that, then you'll never glory in the message. So you come to Christ today. So therefore, we will give all glory and all praise to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we stand before you right now absolutely acknowledging our smallness and your greatness. Absolutely affirming the fact that you are wise and you are faithful and you are true, that your ways are above ours, your thoughts are above ours. And therefore, we can do nothing, Lord, but submit to whatever it is you're doing, knowing that you're good and kind and strong and gracious. Father, in most situations, we find ourselves so confused at our current circumstances, and at the same time, uh, we struggle with uh, why you do what you do. just can't imagine the struggles that went on in the families of those five men. And yet, at the same time, we go back to the scriptures, and we go back to who you are, we go back to your character, and are ever so mindful God, that you're working all things out for your glory, our good, and because of that, we rest. We thank you that your word declares who you are, and because it's declared who you are, we can rest in it and trust in it. And I pray right now, Father, that anyone here who's struggling with where their circumstances are at, that they would this morning bow before you and put a, put a peg in the ground and, and anchor in the sand that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give you glory for all things because you are great. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.